Welcome, everyone, to the special on Uber Technologies. I'm your host, David Morrow, along with co-host Mark Mosher and our special co-host, Chris Cronkite. Uh, all of us have worked very hard over the past several months researching the history and the rise and fall of Uber, and it is uh, quite a remarkable brand, and we are excited to get started. Each of us will be covering a different section, so uh, let's get going, and we really hope you enjoy it. Uber Technologies' explosive growth and constant controversy make it one of the most fascinating companies to emerge over the past two decades. The firm, which was founded back in 2009, soon grew to become one of the highest valued private startup companies in the world. And yet its leadership, its culture, its business practices, and its senior executives have all been called into question. The brand itself has been under seemingly constant attack. Its leaders have brought it to its knees, its founding leaders, and others now are trying to save it. So where does it start? Well, the story begins in Paris, as all good stories should. Back in 2008, before the global meltdown, two friends, Travis Kalanick and Garrett Camp, they were attending LeWeb. LeWeb, L-E-W-E-B, LeWeb. It's an annual technology conference. It's, it's a who's who of technology conferences globally. The Economist calls that conference where revolutionaries gather to plot the future. It's pretty ominous. So back in 2007, both men had sold startups that they each founded, and they were both loaded by that, and they were both young. Kalanick had sold Red Swoosh to, I think, Acme Technologies for like 19 mil, uh, nice change. And Camp had sold StumbleUpon. Do you remember StumbleUpon? I used to use that all the time, actually. Um, to eBay. We all know eBay. Uh, and he made a cool 75 million bucks. Uh, now, rumor has it that the concept of Uber was born one winter night. I mean, check this out. Like, one winter night in Paris in 2008. You can't write this stuff. This is fantastic. This is why great brands become great friggin' brands. So... Rumor has it that the concept of Uber was born one winter night during the conference when the pair was unable to get a cab. Initially, the idea was for a timeshare limo service that could be ordered via an app on someone's phone. Now, after LeWeb, after the conference ended, both entrepreneurs went their separate ways. But when Camp returned to San Francisco, he continued to be fixated on the idea and bought the domain ubercab.com that was the first uber now take into consideration the following this is like our editorial notes this is 2008 the iphone wasn't released by steve jobs and apple until 2007 so people were not walking around with a sliding glass faced phone that every single person in the universe has with a hundred million different apps. This was truly ahead of its time. So picture that. Well, they were smart enough to go and get UberCab. So UberCab takes shape. Now in 2009, Camp was still CEO of StumbleUpon. He began working on a prototype for UberCab as a side project. By summer of that year, he persuaded Kalanick, his buddy from the web back in Paris, to join as UberCab's chief incubator. The service was tested in New York in early 2010, and they decided, you know, they tested with like three cars, and they decided to launch it officially in San Francisco that May. Now, they had a guy named Ryan Graves help them out. He was Uber's general manager, and he was an important figure in the early stages of the company. He became CEO in Uber until Kalanick took over in December of 2010 as CEO. Uh, Graves still stayed with the company then, uh, assuming the role of COO and a member of the board. Now, the ease and simplicity of ordering a car fueled the Uber app. It was rising in popularity right away in 2010. With the tap of a button, a ride could be ordered. That had never been done before. This is before we had all of the apps that we do today. This was before we had the ability to order food and have it delivered to our house and all of those things, right? This was truly revolutionary. GPS would identify the location, 
the cost was automatically charged to the card, the credit card, on the user account. And by October of 2010, the company got what it had wanted. Its first major round of funding of venture capital. $1.25 million from first round capital, which was very well known in the Silicon Valley area at the time. Everything seemed to be going well for Uber at the time. The media coverage was positive, and everyone wanted to be like them. And then the trouble started. In October 2010, the first of many cease and desist orders arrived at Uber headquarters in San Francisco. The company received its first cease and desist order from the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency. One of the main issues cited was the use of the word cab in Uber Cab's name. So the startup is smart. They promptly responded by changing the name Uber Cab to Uber and bought the uber.com domain name from Universal Music Group. So in October 2010, uber.com, as we all know it today, was officially born. So from that point until where we are today, there's a huge arc. So to understand the, the socioeconomic and the cultural impact that this technology had on the world, Chris Cronkite, our um, uh, special guest and host, uh, is going to uh, uh, kind of give us an outline over the timeline uh, and the impact that Uber had and the events um, that it had globally. So let's start that right now. David, Mark, thank you so much, guys, for having me featured on Brandology. It's one of my favorite podcasts, you know, specifically when I first heard that Rise and Fall feature on Toys R Us, I was like, this has huge potential. Because this kind of uh, feature gives people in my generation, you know, in any generation, but my generation specifically, a unique insight into some of the, the things that are a big part of our lives today and we're a big part of our lives as kids. Um, so with that being said, I just wanted to say thank you and let's get on into it. I'm super excited to talk about Uber because there's so much to talk about. So the year is 2014 and Uber Cab is now Uber, has been, and it is that huge brand that we all know it to be today. All kinds of people are using Uber. They've gone away from traditional taxi service because it's so convenient and it's been so competitive. So Uber is so popular and now it's a matter of what to do next. So it's 2014, Uber's thinking, let's really take off and diversify what we're doing. You know, but they found that not all the glitter was gold. You know, the, the road did become a little bumpy. So it's April, 2014. And Uber has launched its Uber Rush service, which for those of you who didn't know, is a bicycle delivery service. And they started it in Manhattan. So the service starts out at $7, which is a $3 base fare and $4 per mile. So Uber actually shut down Rush in March, 2018. So it had a nice, you know, four year run, had some successes. But later on that year in 2014, just a few months, Uber said there is a huge population of people over there in the Eastern hemisphere that we aren't even touching. Where are we talking about? China. It has been on the rise the past few decades and is now nearing, if not already, has become the number one economy in the world. So, Uber entered China. They raised $1.2 billion in funding um, with a company valuation of $17 billion, which was done a month previously. So, at the time, China looked like it was really set to become Uber, Uber's biggest market. I mean, we're talking about, you know, over a billion people in comparison to what is practically a third of that in the U.S. and it's been so successful. So. Fast forward even more throughout 2014, they're just launching all kinds of new ideas. And Uber also launches Uber Pool, which lets you split the ride and cost with another person who's riding a similar route. It's a game changer for people who are worried about cutting expenses, people who are worried about the environment. This is a great way to carpool, save some money. And it's Uber's you know, corporate uh, initiative to just become more sustainable, you know, promote the environment. 2014, Uber was really rolling high. They're thinking we've got all these new innovative launchings. We are just, that company at this time. So in December, they actually raised $600 million from Baidu, which is a Chinese search powerhouse. Um, you know, think of Google being, you know, Bing's nowhere compared to Google, but these types of companies, that's Baidu in China. So their mobile search and their maps apps begin to integrate with Uber, and it seemed that at the time Uber was gearing up for a fight with other prominent Chinese tech companies. Also in December 2014, Uber is actually banned in India's Delhi region after a passenger accused her of rape. The case raises a lot of criticism and concern of Uber's licensing and screening procedures for its drivers. 
which have been under criticism all places in the world for all sorts of issues. You know, in the U.S. there were some criminal background checks that were not being run, and there were also some issues throughout time with uh, the lack of screening and uh, in-depth coverage of the employees for Uber. So, just a couple months later, here we are in 2015, Uber announces a partnership with Carnegie Mellon University to create a new facility in Pittsburgh for self-testing cars. So self-testing cars, electric cars, are the new wave, thought to be, you know, a safer alternative for the future, but there are so many risks involved, you know. It's kind of funny, kind of like uh, nuclear energy, for example. You know, you've got the power plants, which can be so efficient and so sustainable in terms of the alternatives, you know, um, fossil fuels and whatnot. But then there's always that one situation, that one Chernobyl where it goes, where it has went wrong and it's feared to go wrong going forward. So Uber is going to try to avoid that by all costs. The first test vehicles actually uh, set out of Uber's Advanced Technology Center are seen on the streets of Pittsburgh just a few months later in 2015. So March, uh, here we are still in 2015, and Uber begins the process of buying the mapping startup company Descartes, its first acquisition. So it's working towards uh, decreasing the company's reliance on Google Maps. You know, a lot of applications and third-party companies rely on the giants, Apple Maps and Google Maps for their services. Uber's looking to move away from that. So a month later in April, uh, they actually launched Uber Eats, which was the, f you know, big home run on-demand food delivery service that was able to bring meals to your location in minutes. You know, this was a game changer. It was no longer uh, confinement to the traditional food businesses that actually, you know, had delivery as part of their business model. You were now able to order practically any food you wanted, so long as Uber Eats was doing the work on their end. Uh, to secure a partnership with the restaurant, and they secured many partnerships. Uber actually poached more than 40 employees from the Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, where they had the Advanced Technology Center to uh, staff its robotics research facility, which had opened in February to test these self-driving cars. Kalanick had previously used, in quotes, the reason Uber could be expensive is because you're not just paying for the car, you're paying for the other dude in the car. So, Chris, you bring up a good point here between the um, merger of uh, artificial intelligence and automation, meaning the automated cars and the self-driving cars, and all of that that Uber was investing in and banking on, um, and how that infuriates the traditional um, taxi uh, uh, systems and the taxi businesses, right? Because not only is Uber a threat through human driving, but now they're a threat through uh, automated driving as well. So explain that to us. So beginning of the summer, violent protests erupt across France as taxi drivers and their supporters black roads, burn tires, and attack actual suspected Uber drivers. I mean, this was a serious issue that caused Uber a lot of turmoil and worry. You know, you can't uh, you know take that sort of thing from a PR standpoint. Something had to be done. So California Labor Commission rules that an Uber driver is actually an employee, not a contractor. And this calls Uber's underlying business model into question. You know, they are not contractors, and the California Labor Commission says that they're actually employees. So this is a game changer, and the decision actually comes after a San Francisco driver, Barbara Ann Berwick, files a claim against Uber. And, uh, you know, Lyft has really made the big scene. Uh, they're right there with Uber in terms of man-in-man -man for, for, yeah, really, the number one service, you know. I would say that they had over overtaken taxis. Well, well in advance of this point in time. So, so in June, Uber actually raised $3.5 billion in this round of funding. You know, if I rewind back $1.2 billion uh, just over a year before, we're now raising $3.5 billion from the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund, which was actually Uber's largest investment from a single investor. Yasir Al-Rumayan, managing director of the Public Investment Fund, joins Uber's board. Naturally, you know, you invest $3.5 billion into a company, you might want to have a say in what's going on. So, Yasir, welcome to the board. Here we are. Travis Kalanick, uh, the co-founder and CEO of Uber Technology, somewhat infamous at this point, of course, uh, was speaking at the Wall Street Journal Digital Live, the WSJD conference in the Montage Hotel uh, in Laguna Beach on October 20th of 2015. Kalanick proclaims that Uber was profitable in hundreds of cities globally, but that the money was being reinvested in this monster war, this money machine with Chinese rival Didi. The company said at the time it was actually losing $1 billion, allegedly, each year in this fight against Didi. So in July of 2016, just a month later, the company gets another $1.5 billion in cash. It's just flowing in. People just love Uber. They, they believe it's sustainable for the future. Again, the power of the brand is insurmountable. People are believers. 
And they think that they're, they've got to be the competition. 3.5 billion, that's a huge amount. They did run into a little bit of trouble in Hungary. You know, Uber's uh, actually forced to pull out of the country of Hungary after government legislation makes it impossible to operate. So the move followed months of protests by taxi drivers. Again, it's a reoccurring theme. That same month in July, they announced that they had completed its uh, two billionth trips. So Uber had actually had two billion trips just six months after reaching one billion. So things are really on the rise. That really screams to the popularity of Uber and just grown into a monster brand. So here we are, March of 2018, and Uber is out on the road. They've got a self-driving uh, operation being tested out periodically in various cities. Tragedy strikes. They actually uh, witnessed a nightmare. In March of 2018, a woman named Elaine Harrisburg was strolling about in the streets, being a normal pedestrian, doing what pedestrians are entitled to do, and she was struck down by an Uber self-driving car. So Elaine was 49 years old and she was actually killed as a result of this incident. It was the first recorded pedestrian death involving an autonomous car. And just when it seems that it couldn't get any worse, there are culture problems within Uber that arise to such a level that it causes even more damage economically to the company leading up to the IPO, which Chris is gonna tell us about in just a second. So throughout this time, that Chris has been describing, Uber had the Silicon Valley bro culture going on. And, you know, it started with one scandal after the other, and that was the result. Uh, for example, in an interview with GQ magazine, uh, one of the founders, Kalanick, calls Uber, calls the service Boober, because it helps them attract women on demand. And then a few years later, a former Uber engineer named Susan Fowler publishes a blog post with allegations of a toxic and sexist culture at the company. Um, Kalanick pledges to look into the matter, hires former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder to lead an independent investigation into the company's culture because that's how much money and power Uber had at the time. Uh, Fowler's story, though, in February of 2017, is followed by a New York Times report about Uber's aggressive, unrestrained workplace culture. The story goes on and on, alleging that Uber employees did cocaine during a company retreat, that a manager was fired after he was accused of groping multiple female employees and then on Super Bowl Sunday dash cam video shows Kalanick the founder losing his mind in an argument with an Uber driver about lowered fares the Uber CEO issues a profound apology which seems like complete crap and then says that he'll seek out leadership to help by hiring a chief operating officer at the company and then scandal even envelops the self-driving uh, autonomous car aspect of Uber Waymo which is that self-driving car company that spun out of Alphabet, the Google company um, that Chris described earlier. Uh, the, the, they filed a huge lawsuit against Uber. Um, the lawsuit alleged that Uber stole Waymo's trade secrets and shined a huge spotlight on Anthony Lewandowski, who was a former Google engineer who came to Uber by way of the acquisition of his company, uh, which was called Auto. Um, and then again, so in addition to that lawsuit, another massive uh, bombshell happens in 2017. Kalanick's ex-girlfriend, violinist Gabby Holsworth, uh, details all of these incidents of sexism she witnessed while his girlfriend at Uber. One story she tells is about a visit by several Uber executives to an escort karaoke bar in South Korea, which allegedly led to a female executive filing a complaint with Uber's Human Resources Department. And then in that same year, another scandal rocks where Uber's head of engineering resigns from his position after it was reported that he faced sexual harassment allegations during his time at Google and never disclosed it. So it's one thing after another after another. Uh, the culture just keeps getting hammered. Another investigation found 215 claims from employees of discrimination and sexual harassment. And the company says that over 20 employees were fired following the report of that. So that just goes to show you how toxic, at the time, the culture was. And there's literally a plethora of scandal after scandal and news report after news report. We're not going to go into all of them. But all of this leads up to the time when Uber is about to go public. The shares are about to go public. Remember that it is one of the most profitable privately held companies in the world at this time, in 2019. And it's about to do its IPO. What does that mean for the everyday guy, everyday woman like you and me? So 
So here's everything you need to know about Uber's big day, the IPO. So um, was one of the biggest in years, um, but ahead of it, drivers actually went on strike. Their conditions were worsening and they were seeing a lack of transparency from Uber. So drivers were in an all out protest um, and this is both Uber, Lyft and other third party transportation services. A workers union out of the UK actually called Uber's IPO and I quote, orgy of greed, end quote. <laughs> so in May, you know, while Uber was going public, they were facing some striking issues with their employees, uh, their contractors, so let's be specific, you know, they're not employees, even though they were ruled as employees, um, that was a big issue for Uber. So they've gone public on the NYSE and they started out at 45 a share, an initial market cap of 75.5 billion. However, by the end of that day, shares were actually down to 41.57 which left investors who got into IPO price a cumulative loss across the board of $655 million. Initial Uber investors, not so happy. And then just when you think that losing millions of dollars of investor monies wouldn't be good for a brand, something even worse happens. Uber's world now collides at the intersection of criminal justice, cybersecurity, data breaches, and damaging, destroying of a brand. So what do we mean? Well, Uber had sustained not just one, but two massive data breaches. And it's not about the data that went missing, but it's how they handled it and how the criminal justice system is challenging Uber and its former executives in the way that they handled it that has changed the United States law when it comes to charging a person with criminal activity when it comes to the way that they handled a data breach. And that's exactly what happened. And it's the first time it's ever happened in the United States. On August 20th, 2020, a criminal complaint was filed charging Joseph Sullivan, Uber's former chief security officer, with obstruction of justice and misprision of a felony in connection with the alleged attempt to cover up a 2016 data breach. These are very serious charges that Mr. Sullivan has the presumption of innocence on. So let us be clear that we are simply retelling what is stated in the criminal complaints and what attorneys have written about. Mr. Sullivan is absolutely to be presumed innocent. And we cite these authorities in the story below on our website, so please you can uh, read them for yourself. But at the time of the 2016 data breach, Uber was being investigated by the US FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, in connection with a prior data breach that occurred back in 2014. Now, according to the complaint, the hackers behind the 2016, the second breach, stole a database containing the personal information of about 57 million Uber users and drivers. The hackers contacted Uber to inform the company of the attack and demanded payment in return for their silence. What makes this criminal complaint so unique and so noteworthy is the fact that somebody is actually being charged with a felony that they can go to prison for for eight years for how they handled a data breach. And collectively, there are statements that were filed contemporaneously with that, uh, with the uh, criminal charges um, that show a case that's really, really different. I mean, this case allegedly involves a deliberate cover-up of a data breach while in the course of an active FTC investigation of a prior breach. That's totally something that is very, very rare. The important thing for all of us is to understand that many of the statements from the Department of Justice and the specific allegations in the complaint appear to have potentially far-reaching implications for companies, their executives, and for cybersecurity professionals across the globe. Meaning, Breach Response Council, attorneys that assist in breach responses, and the cybersecurity professionals dealing with that must seriously take this into consideration in future incidents. In real life, what this means is a common question that attorneys and cybersecurity professionals deal with, and that is when responding to a hack or a ransomware attack or other cyber attack, when and whether do you inform law enforcement? At what point do they need to be engaged or should they be engaged? And what happens if you do or what happens if you don't? Filed alongside these criminal charges, the Department of Justice, the DOJ, submitted a press release quoting U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of California, David L. Anderson, as saying the following, quote, We expect good corporate citizenship. 
We expect prompt reporting of criminal conduct. We expect cooperation with our investigations. We will not tolerate corporate cover-ups. We will not tolerate illegal hush money payouts. The press release also quotes the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI's deputy special agent in charge, Craig Fair, stating as follows, quote, Concealing information about a felony from law enforcement is a crime. While this case is extreme example of a prolonged attempt to subvert law enforcement, we hope companies stand up and take notice. Do not help criminal hackers cover their tracks. Do not make the problem worse for your customers. And do not cover up criminal attempts to steal people's personal data. Again, keep in mind that Mr. Sullivan absolutely has the presumption of innocence. While the charges in the criminal complaint filed by the Department of Justice against Mr. Sullivan still remain unproven, they're clearly a shot across the bow of corporate executives engaged in cyber attacks and incident response efforts. The threat of criminal prosecution of individuals involved raises the stakes, particularly with regard to the core questions of when, to whom, and what to disclose. Security executives in particular now appear to be stuck in the middle, trying to protect the interests of the company while also keeping themselves clear of criminal allegations. Now keep in mind that after McDermott, Will, and Emery published their report, a spokesman for Mr. Sullivan reached out and made the following statement on behalf of Mr. Sullivan. Quote, there is no merit to the charges against Mr. Sullivan, who is a respected cybersecurity expert and former assistant U.S. attorney. This case centers on a data security investigation at Uber by a large cross-functional team made up of some of the world's foremost security experts, Mr. Sullivan included. If not for Mr. Sullivan's and his team's efforts, it's likely that the individuals responsible for this incident never would have been identified at all. From the outset, Mr. Sullivan and his team collaborated closely with legal communications and other relevant teams at Uber in accordance with the company's written policies. Those policies made clear that Uber's legal department and not Mr. Sullivan or his group was responsible for deciding whether and to whom the matter should be disclosed. All right, well, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about uh, Uber's expansion and some of the problems around uh, what they faced, and there were quite a few problems around it. So during its expansion, Uber met really resistance from uh, taxi companies to government institutions, um, government regulators, even its own drivers, right? So as part of their strategy to, to get around the opposition, uh, the company hired this really slick, uh, high-profile political corporate attorney, strategist, uh, David Poth. So this guy, interesting fact, he actually worked on Obama's 2008 uh, presidential campaign, right? So this is a guy that they got protecting them and looking out for their interests to fight what they called the resistance. Um, so really, it really came to a boil in 2014. Uh, taxi drivers in London, uh, where else? Berlin, Paris, I think Madrid, and they staged this huge, huge protest against Uber and it got everybody's attention. Taxi companies claim that since Uber avoided expensive license fees and they, they were bypassing local laws even, they created an unfair competition, right? What, fair, fair to assert, right? So the case was heard by Europe's top court in December of 2016. And because of that, Uber lost its license to operate in London. And get this, when they lost their license to operate in London, the company had like 40,000 registered drivers. Uh, so there's a group called uh, TFL, Transport for London. And they made the accusation. They said Uber was unfit to hold a license. In uh, the mayor, he had been accused and caved in and, and let some things happen and thought that he was restricting consumer choice. So I think it was in June of 2018, a London judge uh, actually overturned the ban, effectively allowing Uber to operate once again. Uh, but this time they were under a, like a 15 month license along with a lot of conditions that went with that. So, but they were back in business. So across the pond, we go over and now in New York, um, it surfaced that Uber had mistaken, mistakenly charged driver's commissions based on a pre-tax earning as opposed to, you know, an after-tax earnings. And actually it, it cost tens of millions of dollars to the New York drivers. So what does the company do? They, they issue their, um, Via culpa, the company said it was it was an accounting error and it was uh, committed to paying the drivers back in full as quickly as possible. All right, of course. So this issue does raise some questions, really, about the fairness of, of who ends up paying the taxes. So, yeah, somebody's got to pay the tax man, right? Everything's got to get paid. So the driver advocacy advocacy group 
So the driver's advocacy group had argued really for some time that Uber was simply just avoiding attacks at the expense of the drivers. And it kind of makes sense, really. I mean, it's a fair accusation. Well, that wasn't something that was, was easily overlooked. So the New York Times picked up on it and actually found evidence to support that. Right? The paper estimated it could have cost drivers like hundreds of millions of dollars. So, and then in June of 2017, yeah, a New York judge, he ruled that Uber drivers should be considered as employees as opposed to being you know, an independent contractor, like the company had argued, you know, at least in certain cases. So the decision opens up for drivers to receive employee benefits and some other perks and paid time off, which would likely have a significant impact on the bottom line. I mean, how could it not? Uh, so in August of 2018, the following year, Restrictions on the license from a New York City Council uh, said it was a blow for Uber and it would mean a pause on any new licensing and sharing service in the city for a 12 month period. So fast forward to May 2019. So now you get the national government involved, the feds, the U.S. National Labor Relations Board, right? There's a mouthful like that's that's not a, a easy, easy uh, group to get along with there. Uh, rules that Uber drivers are independent contractors and not employees. And so what's this do? Big win, big win for Uber. All right, now let's let's talk about Kalanick's departure because this is this is really where things went sideways. This was a lot of this made no sense, and a lot of it, uh, you know, should have never probably have happened. So in June of 2017, uh, Kalanick he takes a leave of absence. Uber, uh, he said he was going to work on himself. Right, you can't see the air quotes, but I'm doing the. He's going to go work on himself. And after a year that had just been riddled with scandal and, and controversy, and he didn't he didn't give a timeline for his return. This is the CEO of this huge company. So eventually Kalanick was out. And in 2017, man, it, it was a rough year for Uber. Really the troubles began, I guess in about February. And this is when it all really broke loose. So a former female Uber engineer, she outed the company big time. And she outed them for a sexist culture that they had, uh, that they had manufactured and that they had let grow. And she did this in this really long 3000 word blog post. So she alleged that Uber's corporate culture, that it was super hostile, uh, highly sexist and quite offensive to everyone. And you know, she wasn't far from the mark. Uh, if you've read anything about this and seen some of the evidence, yeah, she, she kind of hit the nail on the head with this one. I'm just saying, that's my opinion. Um, but the, the post quickly went viral. Right. Everybody picked up on it in uh, a number of high level employees. They were let go or resigned uh, for reasons relating directly to these allegations in the, all the months following. So following the blog post, uh, the board called for an internal investigation, right, which you got to do. You got to look at it. You got to see what's going on here. Uh, and it became known as the Holder Investigation. Well, if that name rings a bell, that's because it was led by the former attorney uh, general, Eric Holder. And this investigation, it resulted in uh, 47 recommendations intended to improve the culture because it was that bad. The work environment was that bad. And they ended up firing another 20 staff members. So this thing's got legs, right? We are up to a high count of people leaving or being let go because of the Holder investigation internally for Uber because of her blog post that seemed to hit the mark on the head. So in the following months after the scandal, uh, it seemed to haunt both the company and the CEO, right? They, like his problems couldn't end. The, the blog wasn't the end of it. The investigation wasn't the end of it. There were letters that were being released to the press, uh, which really confirmed, and this is some of the stuff I was talking about that I've seen, that the sexist attitudes really came from the top down, even including from Kalanick himself. He just fostered this, this sexist, this bad, negative culture. And if that wasn't bad enough, he was also caught on video arguing with an Uber driver about lowering fares. So it really didn't strengthen his public image at that point. So it gets worse, right? The dominoes just keep falling and there's a bunch of them. So simultaneously, Uber's being sued by Alphabet, by Google. So Google's Waymo, they're claiming that former employees of theirs stole secrets relating to the Google self-driving technology. Right, so Uber's working on their own driving technology and suddenly they get, you know, leaps ahead of where they were with their R&D after they hire people that have been working at Google. Yeah, go figure. Uh, 
that the case was settled though in, in early 2018. But in addition to that, here you go, the New York Times again, they revealed that Uber had used a feature it would allow it to operate in areas where it was illegal. That results in a uh, criminal investigation. So here you go, another domino. So you can't stop. So yeah, 2017, 2018, bad times for these guys. Uh, so in June of 2017, yeah, when Kalanick resigned, um, there was actually, it was like a shareholder revolt. Like these people rose up. I'm talking like pitchforks, torches, you know, the whole thing. They're marching down the street. They're coming to his doors. Uh, so he, he, he drops out. He resigns. He says, he's, he's bump it, I'm out. So a little more than two months after that, uh, it was announced that Dara Kora Shahahi, uh, who was the CEO of Expedia, if you didn't know, or because I horribly mispronounced uh, his name, uh, that he was going to take over. So this guy, here's an interesting fact. He actually he came over to New York in 78 uh, with his parents. Uh, they were escaping the Iranian Revolution. Right? So he started his career in finance and investment bank, eventually became the CFO of, um, if you're familiar with IAC, Interactive Corp. Uh, and he held that position as CFO there for like seven years. And then he became the CEO of Expedia. Uh, so this guy, he's worked his way up to the top. So he comes in, he's the CEO. So now they're thinking, you know, we've got to really build a, a powerhouse. We've got to build the A-team here. Right? So what do they do? Uh, in December of 2017, they get Barney Harford. They get Barney, he's the CEO um, of Orbitz, the online travel agency. Uh, so he he is now the chief operating officer at Uber. So you can see they've got a lot of repair work to do, but they're doing the right things. So really the bottom line um, is that it doesn't stop there. Uh, so like Google and Apple and Tesla Motors, Uber's gearing up for the, you know, the future of their driverless cars. And the companies, they're currently planning to get a permit for the self-driving car in California. However, the road's been really bumpy for them. With all this going on, uh, with Waymo from Google, uh, from Alphabet suing them. Um, so now in Uber's up for theft in their theft investigation of the proprietary technology for the self-driving car. And not to mention that the uh, CEO and founder has been, you know, let go in the midst of a revolt. Uh, so Uber hips probably the, the worst snag yet. Is if you're thinking it can't get any worse, yeah, well just wait, the other shoe does drop. So in March of 2018, it, this was horrible. So one of their self-driving cars fatally struck a pedestrian and it caused the company to temporarily suspend all its testing. And they had to stop everything, just put the brakes on. You know, they, at least they did something right at this point. They, they, they did one thing right. So in May of 2018, Uber announced that it would halt all its Arizona testing program um, that it would conduct there and just stopped and everywhere else. In July 2018, Uber self-driving cars made their return in Pittsburgh, um, but it was too late. They really couldn't turn things around. It, it, the program was too far gone. So 2017, June 2017, Kalanick resigns as CEO. He exits. Um, you know, they referred to it in, in uh, the New York Times as uh, uh, hours of drama between Uber's major investors. And uh, so five of them demanded his immediate resignation right in this revolt, pitchfork and, and torch revolt. Uh, so then he's out. So early, uh, I believe August 2017, Uber Investors uh, Benchmark Capital was one of their biggest investors. So they sue Kalanick, right? The, like the hits just keep on coming. They sue Kalanick over fraud allegations in a lawsuit around um, three Uber board seats. So he had these board seats uh, that he unilaterally filled with whomever he chose. And he appointed himself to one of these seats. So he, appoint, he leaves and then he appoints himself to the, to the board. Right, to one of these vacant seats after he's resigned as CEO. I mean, look at this guy, right? Really? So uh, there a little bit later in, in August of 2017, uh, the new CEO comes in, tries to fill the vacancy and it's, it just, it doesn't work. It's, it, um, Kalanick is up against him. He's, he's saying that he's not leaving, that he's staying in the seat, he's staying on the board. Uh, so then next month in September, uh, in a surprise move by Kalanick, he exercises his control over the last two seats. They were still open. Uh, and what he does is he appoints the Xerox chairwoman, Ursula Burns, and formal, uh, and former Merrill Lynch CEO, John Thane. Right? So he's building his own A-team on the board of the company that he left. The move seems to be designed you know, to get ahead of proposed changes to the board structure that would really keep him in power, or at least allow him some power. All right, so then if all those dominoes aren't bad enough, 
then the breach. Yeah, the cybersecurity breach. So in November of 2017, which probably had to be the worst year for Kalanick and anybody involved with Uber at that time, Bloomberg reports uh, that Uber paid hackers $100,000 to cover up a massive, I mean massive, data breach from October 2016. So they had sat there for over a year on this information. Uh, that's when Kalanick was still in charge and it exposed the personal data of 57 million customers. They say that again, the personal data of 57 million customers. Well, now we've got the new CEO, Dara. Uh, so he comes out and he makes a statement. And I mean, at least this guy, he's a stand-up guy. And, you know, he comes in and he says, none of this should have ever happened and I will not make excuses for it. So, you know, at least they would try to stop. They had, you know, Dara says, the buck stops here. It stops with me. So that was the last of the dominoes. But as a result of that, uh, less than a year later, Uber agreed to pay $148 million in the settlement around that 2016, uh, 2016 data breach that affected the 57 million users. Uh, and the lawsuit against Uber drivers involves the attorney generals and really, uh, I think every US state at that time. So it was really bad, uh, but they had the right direction. The buck stopped there. Thank goodness there were no more dominoes. You know, who could, who could take any more of that? Uh, so in addition to a crazy IPO, and then two data breaches, they now have former executives that have been criminally charged. The brand has taken an absolute beating. From the beginning, the data breach shed light on the damage that the culture there had caused, and it had just resulted in one bad PR event after another. I mean, back in 2017, Bloomberg reported that Uber paid hackers 100 grand to cover up a massive data breach back from October 2016, when Kalanick, the original founder, was still in charge. Then, as um, he gets ousted, and all of his power essentially stripped away, and the new uh, head in charge, Kajra Shahi, um, comes in and allegedly isn't informed of the changes in the data breach, or the, or the details of the data breach. Uh, and in a statement, he himself says, none of this should have happened, and I will not make excuses of it. So he heads up, uh, and in September uh, 18, Uber agrees to pay $148 million in a settlement around the 2016 data breach. And in case you're wondering how big of a lawsuit that was against Uber, the $148 million settlement involved every single state. It involved attorneys and attorney generals from every state in the United States. That's a lot of lawyers. That's bad for a brand. So in light of all this, you might be wondering, where is Uber today? Over the past few years, Uber just can't seem to emerge from its public relations nightmare. Since 2017, the public relations tension fueled by the hashtag delete Uber movement on social media, and then its former CEOs, political ties to President Trump, accusations, uh, that they attempted to profit off the taxi driver strike, uh, along with the data breach and the criminal uh, ramifications from that, uh, the gender bias lawsuits, the sexual harassment, the bro culture, all of those things. That has all plagued Uber. And one wonders, well, does that bad PR affect the brand? And the answer is absolutely. Again, remember what a brand is. A brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. And that applies to apps, that applies to technology companies, right? It doesn't help also that the market for ride-hailing apps has become incredibly saturated. Uh, there's drivers and riders have tons of options. And the bottom line is there's a huge difference between revenue and profit. I mean, the company got hit with a wave of negative press since it went public and uber has yet really to be profitable and it continues to lose money and it continues to be chipped away by its main competitor lyft who has not been plagued with bad culture massive changes in leadership and bad pr and legal investigations as recently as last year in 2019 uber spent hundreds of millions of dollars on an image repair campaign, uh, rebuilding their brand, hosting a Uber brand website and talking about uh, their culture and their people. 
but it still to date hasn't amounted to a massive transformation in the organization, although time will tell. Since after all, there are some very bright minds at that company. So overall, when we think about Uber and the challenges they've faced, you know, I don't think that anything can explain the challenges from a cultural standpoint better than what happened back in India back in 2014. One of the first initial reports when a woman passenger was raped by a driver that happened in New Delhi, India, India back in 2014, uh, the company's CEO at the time came out with a statement. The first part of that statement addressed that they were going to put in more rigorous credit checks and record checks, right? which is great, but that should have been done in the first place initially. Then the second part really kind of goes to show the challenges in this brand. The second part talked about how Uber was going to work with officials in New Delhi to fix the cultural problem of violence against women in that country. We all remember thinking at the time, you guys don't even have the right processes in place in your own company to make sure your own drivers aren't a risk to your passengers, your customers. Yet you're promising to help an entire country fix its problems. I mean, they have to start within and start with the company and then work their way out. That's when it fell on everybody's radar that Uber was having a bigger problem on its hands than just uh, the economics of amassing a widespread trains and change and transformation in the transportation industry. So after all of this, where is it today? Now, as, as we wrap up, we can look at that as recently as November 4th, 2020, which was yesterday, as we sit here and record this. Uh, the Daily News, uh, Bloomberg, All Report, uh, dailynews.com had an article by Joel Rosenblatt and others um, showing that in one fell swoop, Uber Technologies and Lyft fended off labor protections that were decades in the making. That allowed those companies to keep compensating their drivers as independent contractors and not as employees. So the, the ruling is really interesting um, because it created a third classification of what Uber drivers and those types of service gigs mean. The court and the ruling said that they're not employees, so the company doesn't have to pay for all of those health insurance and all those PTO and all that administrative aspects that becomes really costly when you have that many employees. And Uber was facing possibly going out of business had they ruled against them. On the other hand, they couldn't just remain independent contractors because they were out there holding themselves out as representatives of Uber, right? So they came up with a third classification. And this third classification means that they have to offer additional perks um, and additional benefits, but they don't have to go to the level of full-time employees. That is really significant, and that's where that brand sits today. Uber spent over $200 million for them and their supporters, along with Lyft, uh, on that ballot measure, Proposition 22. Um, and it was a record for the most popular state of California. Um, and according, you know, at least for Uber, it was worth every penny. Because 200 million bucks is much cheaper from their perspective than paying the employees these benefits that the legislature had established for them. And that's according to uh, William Gould, professor at Stanford Law, who's former chairman of the National Labor Relations Board and the President Clinton. So one of the questions that we ask is when we talk about brands and culture, right? They are intimately entwined, right? A brand is what people say about you after you leave. That's based on what they think about your culture. And so now, given the fact that you know what you know, my question as we leave you today is, what do you think about that brand? What do you think about that culture? Thanks for listening. And we look forward to our next Rise and Fall session of another iconic brand. Hey everybody, uh, Mark and I are really excited about the upcoming episode with Brian Scudamore, CEO and founder of 1-800-GOT-JUNK and many other brands. He is well known, he's been on Oprah, he's been in Forbes magazine, he's written Wall Street Journal articles. You know his brands, we can't wait for you to meet him and have access to all of his wisdom in terms of culture and branding. 
As always, thank you for listening, and please don't forget to subscribe and download all of our episodes so that you get noticed. And don't miss the upcoming episode with Brian Scudamore. Hey, Mark, are you excited about this uh, 2021 Female Leadership Summit? Oh, David, this is going to be incredible. I can't wait. I'm, I'm really pumped about it. The 2021 Brandology Female Leadership Summit is going to be your opportunity to access a wealth of leadership insight from a world-class faculty we've put together, ready to equip and inspire you regardless of your field or industry. Yeah, so each chosen leader will provide a short you know, five to 10 minute presentation on culture, on leadership and practical ways to help you succeed. Um, there'll also be a panel discussion on hot topics. Uh, the belief is female leadership matters is more important today than ever before. Absolutely. That's why the 2021 Brandology Female Leadership Summit will give you access to this unique group of world-class faculty who will share their distinct perspectives, inspiring and equipping you with practical skills you can use right away. So don't miss the 2021 Female Leadership Summit only on Brandology Podcast. So subscribe and download the episodes to be notified of this upcoming event. And as always, thank you for listening. Thank you. Mark and I want to take a moment and thank everyone that listens and subscribes to our podcast. It means a lot. We're truly trying to make this one that we ourselves would find interesting and find entertaining. Um, If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or ideas for subjects, great brands that have risen and fallen, great case studies, or fantastic guests that you'd like to see, please reach out to us. Brandology Podcast Staff at gmail.com. That's Brandology Podcast Staff at gmail.com. Hey, David, that was another great episode. We tend to post one or two a week. Uh, unfortunately, don't really have a way of wrapping this up. No, uh, no, we really don't have anything formal or fancy or technological. Um, thank you for listening. Please follow and subscribe, turn notifications on so that when we post the next episode, you will be notified of the new content. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate it. Everyone, thanks for listening.